Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we have Josh Seiden talking about how software has fundamentally changed the way business works. Welcome to the Business of Software Podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Josh is an author, designer, coach and product leader with deep experience creating digital products and services within product businesses, consultancies and now on his own. He brings an innovative spirit and user-centred perspective to his work with companies large and small. He helps teams find and validate market opportunities and then to create the right approach to go after those opportunities and to design and ship great products. He's a co-author of both Sense and Respond and Lean UX, applying lean principles to improve user experience. In this talk, he looks at how it's not simply that software has given us new ways to reach our customers or new capabilities to achieve our goals, but software has enabled a new way of working. Josh was joined in this talk by his dog, Joey, but Joey had very little to say on the matter. Happy listening. Just, just hold in your mind uh, while I'm talking that uh, just trust me when I tell you that the set of circumstances that led Joey to being here in this auditorium today were, um, let's just call them unpredictable. And, and uh, <laughs> so nice weather, huh? And uh, end of summer, hurricane season. Um, you know, I've been thinking about buying a, a, a new car recently, and um, something got me thinking about a, a brand new Cadillac. And so I, I went up to the, to the Cadillac website, and uh, this was what they had featured on the Cadillac website today. And I, I don't know about you, but I thought to myself, you know, it's, um, it's September, it's the end of September. I don't want one of these crappy 2017 models. Right? Let's, make, let's, let's, let's move those out of here because I'm waiting for the 2018 model. And um, you know, I think for me, the end of the season brings new cars. Right? It's like a natural phenomenon. Every brand, Cadillac, Ford, Lincoln, you know, uh, Honda, Subaru, it doesn't matter. Every brand, every model, we expect the new model year to start showing up around this time of year. Right? It's like it's a natural phenomenon. But it's not actually a natural phenomenon. Right? It's a deliberate strategy on the part of auto manufacturers to drive seasonal demand. Right? This goes back to what Scott was saying, right? all these old ideas that we can look at. This is a 100-year-old idea uh, in the car industry, and it goes back even earlier than that uh, to the early bicycle manufacturers. But we think of this as a natural rhythm. We think of this as the natural rhythm of business, that every year there's new models. And so much of our sort of management science is based on this annual rhythm. And we just take it for granted. That's the speed at which business moves. But it doesn't have to be that way. So if you take, for example, Tesla. right? Now, Tesla is a car company. They have to move at a certain pace because they're making cars. Cars take a certain amount of time to design and plan and test, tool up, build, right? But Tesla's really interesting because they overlay a second rhythm 
on top of, of uh, the rhythm of the automobile industry. And that is the rhythm of software. And so Tesla has this amazing uh, sort of capability built into their cars and into their operations, which is that many of the features of their vehicles are implemented through software. Right? So uh, if you're a Tesla owner, one of the benefits is that Tesla can do over-the-air updates of your car. You can go out to the garage one morning, you wake up, and there's a new feature in your car, right? Because they beamed it out over the air, your car updated just like your iPhone updates. It's amazing, right? Um, there's a great story uh, that uh, happened at the beginning of uh, the year. Uh, a Tesla owner in California drove up to the supercharger station uh, in San Mateo there to, to charge his car, and there were no open charger slots. Um, and he was frustrated, and he tweeted at Elon Musk. He said, the San Mateo supercharger is always full of idiots who leave their Tesla for hours, even if it's already charged. And I don't know if you, you, you can picture that. You know, I don't, can you picture the San Mateo supercharger station? Um, but, but it's like, it's right by a Starbucks, and it's right by a Whole Foods, and so people just, they leave their cars, and they go and they do their stuff, you know? And um, so he tweeted this at Elon Musk. Elon Musk uh, tweets back, you're right, this is becoming an issue. Uh, we will take action. And six days later, six days later, uh, Tesla releases an update to the software in their cars. And now what happens is when your car is done charging, you get an alert on your smartphone. And it says, hey, your, your charge is over. If you don't move your car, we're going to start charging you a per minute parking fee. That's pretty amazing, right? That they can do this, right? Six days from tweet to feature. And so this is an example of, uh, this is the obligatory, here it is, everybody say it with me. Um, I love the, the egghead picture, by the way, the conehead picture. Um, this is an example of what Mark Andreessen said in 2011, right? Software is eating the world and that every company is becoming a software company. Um, now, I do a lot of uh, consulting and, and training, and, and I travel to, I, I work with a lot of large companies, and I frequently get this pushback, right? Oh, our, not, our company's not a software company. Our company's a bank, right? But I want to read you a quote from, um, this is from the CIO at ING, one of the largest banks in the world, um, who uh, was talking about their digital transformation efforts. He said, in, in our case, there was no particular financial imperative to begin digital transformation. Um, the company was performing well. The market, markets were favorable. Um, he said, but customer behavior was rapidly changing in response to new digital distribution channels. And customer expectations were being set by digital leaders in other industries, not just banking. And so we came to the realization that ultimately, we are a technology company operating in the financial services business. Now, all of this, uh, this is sort of expectation setting, right, from the best performers in the industry, the expectation setting is that when I tweet at Elon Musk, I'm likely to get some response, not just over Twitter, but in terms of some responsive new behavior from that company. 
And that expectation is built on the nature of software, right? The nature of software now is that software is in continuous production, right? It's not in the sort of discrete production that, we're, that we inherited from the auto industry, but it's in continuous production. And, and, and that enables us to work in a new way, right? It enables us to build things, to put them out in the world, and to sense how people are using them, sense changes in demand, sense things that we couldn't predict, like a dog at a conference, right? Um, and then respond appropriately. Now, uh, in 2013, I, along with my, my colleague Jeff, we, we wrote a book called Lean UX. And uh, Lean UX was a book about how digital product teams could work more effectively in this new way, right? How designers and product managers and engineers could collaborate inside companies to be more effective. And what we discovered uh, after that book was released, and we, we were traveling around training and teaching this method, um, we got a really unexpected uh, um, set of feedback. Uh, from the teams that we worked with. The teams that we were working with told us, we really want to work this way. We like working this way. We think this is the most effective way to, for us to, to collaborate, the most effective way for us to move the needle for our businesses. But we can't work this way. We can't work this way because our boss won't let us. Or we can't work this way because our organization isn't set up this way. So that was a really fascinating piece of feedback for us. And we started to dig into this. And we thought, well, surely this is just because your company's big. Or surely this is because you're a bank, not a software company. And what we discovered is that this dynamic exists at every company. This dynamic, to, to one degree or another, is a problem whether you actually are a native software company or whether you're you know, uh, the, the, a Ford or a Chevy. Right? And, and the problem kind of comes from a clash in worldviews. Right? This new worldview of the sort of continuous, agile, iterative process that we, th we think is normal in the technology world, and the sort of linear planning models that we've inherited from our industrial uh, forefathers. Right? in which it made sense, in which to, to make a car, you had to go through this kind of linear planning model from design to test to build to, to, to ship to sell to sunset for the next year's model. Now, there are a lot of, lot of process models for this new way of working. Um, and I think one of the most important things that they share, um, whether it's a sort of lean manufacturing, uh, agile, lean startup, uh, our own lean UX methods, right? One of the most important sort of common factors is this idea of continuous learning. And I'm gonna talk about why that's important in the second half of the talk. But the, the short version is that the world we live in now, we're, to, 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 um, we're in that sort of second half of the chess, uh, chessboard, right? Um, to, to go back to the previous talk. We're in a world of great complexity and, and uh, difficulty of predicting what's gonna happen next. And so the best way forward in the face of that uncertainty 
is to use process models that are built around this idea of continuous learning. That implies a great deal of organizational change, though, and that organizational change landscape kind of sucks. <laughs> this, is, this is what it can look like uh, in the world of organizational change. These, this is, um, this, by the way, this is the Agile landscape version three, right? <laughs> So these are the methods that you might choose from if you are trying to kind of engage your organization in digital transformation, but it's not about the methods. And so for the rest of this talk, I'm not gonna to talk to you about specific methods. Instead, what I wanna to talk to you about are uh, principles that I hope you will embrace and think about how to, how to drive these principles forward in your organization. And the first one that I'm going to talk to you about is this idea of continuous change, okay? Uh, embracing continuous change. I like this picture. This says uh, one day's output at Chevrolet factory. Um, now, I'm not sure, but this is definitely in the East Bay of California somewhere, and this may have been the same plot of land on which Tesla builds their cars now. Um, but this is an interesting world. If you go into work in the morning at this Chevy factory, you know what done looks like, right? Your job, maybe you're somebody who works uh, assembling wheel assemblies, and you know what a finished wheel assembly is, and you know when that wheel assembly is done, somebody's gonna attach it to the axle, somebody's gonna attach it to the chassis, that car will be done and will roll off the line, and when you have that kind of uh, clear definition of done, you can plan this way. This is all the work that goes into making a car, and uh, you know, you do all these jobs, car rolls off the line. Software's not like that, right? Um, now, how many folks here have an Instagram account, right? Um, I have an Instagram account, I also have teenage daughters, and, and one of the things that I can tell you is that there's a huge amount of social pressure uh, on social media to look great, right? And if you're a teenage girl, there's some things that don't make it into your pictures your fat dad and your, your, your whiny brother, right? Like those things don't make the picture because you have to look good. One of the interesting things, and I just learned about this uh, a couple years ago from my kids, is that in response to this social pressure, kids have come up with this thing called Finstas. How many of you have heard of Finstas? Yeah, Finstas are fake Instagram accounts, right? And they are a second Instagram account the kids create, they're private, they invite only their closest, most trusted friends, right? And it's a place where they can be real, they can be goofy, they can, you know, look at this, right? Um, that same social pressure was the opportunity for Snapchat, right? Self-destructing messages, we can post goofy, silly stuff that goes away, right? Now, the success of Snapchat led to Instagram implementing their own version of stories. So my question for you is when is Instagram done? The answer is it's never done. Instagram is never done. So it's not like a Chevy or a Tesla. It's never done. And, and, and this reality is what's led us to the sort of process models that we see in, in today's, uh, today's world, whether it's Agile or design thinking or lean startup 
or the one in the middle is, is called Beyond Budgeting, and it's a way of doing continuous financial planning. These, these continuous process models um, are about uh, continuous learning, and they acknowledge this idea that we're never done. Software's never done. Now, if software's never done, right, how do I tell my teams what to do? Right? If, I, if I'm not saying to them, we'll build a car and let it roll off the assembly line, how do I direct my teams? Um, does anybody know what this is? A rotary engine. Yeah, you know you're at a, a, a conference of geeks, right? Um, so this is a, this is a combustion engine. It, it, uh, uh, it's not really, I don't think there are any production cars using it now, but um, this is an, an example of what uh, systems theorists call a, a complicated system, right? I could give a team of skilled engineers a rotary engine. I could say, figure this thing out, make me another one. Take it apart, put it back together, it'll work the same way each time, right? So you need skill to be able to duplicate this, but I could write a set of specs and I could say, do this thing, and a team of engineers could make my, uh, make my rotary engine for me. This is an intersection in India. I, I'm just going to let this run for a second. So, so this is uh, one, one might think a whole lot less complicated, certainly mechanically, than the rotary engine, right? It's, it's two lanes of blacktop a T intersection coming in at the side. There aren't even any uh, traffic lights here. Uh, and um, <laughs> but, but if I ask a team of skilled engineers to duplicate this, even in Boston, <laughs> you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it because it's a social problem. This, this is what system theorists call a, a complex domain. And, and the problem in complex domain is that it's very difficult to specify right, how you are going to get this result. So I can't give a team of engineers an instruction and say, go make me this, as much as I would like to. <laughs> right? And so translating that back to, to thinking about management, um, if I want one of these, if I want a Wonkle engine, I can say, here are the outputs I want. Go create these outputs. Make me this set of features. Right? If I want the, the, this, though, I need to specify the outcomes. Right? And outcomes, outcomes are the desired user in our world, the desired user and customer behaviors that deliver business results. Okay? So let me say that again. Outcomes are the user and customer behaviors that drive business results. And if I'm operating in a world of complex systems, then the way I need to direct my teams is by specifying the outcomes that I want them to create. Now let's bring that back to software for a second. Let's say I wanted to go after Instagram. I wanted to create an Instagram killer. Well, I could tell my team, hey, take a look at Instagram figure out all the features, copy all the features, and build me that system. Right? Make me those features, make me those outputs. And in fact, that's what Mobley did in 2013 
Um, some reviewers even said that they out-featured Instagram. By 2016, Mobley was bankrupt. And they were bankrupt because even though they were able to exactly duplicate the feature set of Instagram, they were not able to generate the outcomes that Instagram generates. Right? And the outcomes are an engaged customer base. Looking at photos x times a minute, scrolling photos, posting stories, whatever those outcomes are, those behaviors that we're trying to generate. And that's the, that's the thing that we need to do if we wanted to go after Instagram. Now, this is hard. I, I admit that this is hard because so much of the way we organize our, uh, our work relationships, our contractual relationships, both inside and outside our company, are features, right? I tell my team, build me these features. And they say, got it, boss, done, right? Or I hire a vendor and I write into the contract, you know, build me these features, right? It's easy to manage that way, and it's traditional to manage that way, but it doesn't make sense. I recently was working with a large client. We were planning about a year's worth of work to launch a new product, and we had some idea of what it would cost to, to spend a year doing this. We had to go through the company's funding process, and the company's funding process required us to specify, okay, you want a year's worth of money, a year from now, tell us what features you will have built. And we said, well, we have no idea what features are gonna work. We're gonna do what software teams do. do. We're gonna experiment our way forward and learn continuously. And they were like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Right? It can be done, though. It can be done in large organizations. This is um, Pearson's product lifecycle, which attempts to solve this problem um, and attempts to solve it in a way that is sort of very outcome-centric, very lean startup-oriented, very much like uh, discovery-driven planning, right? Um, where you can see these are different stages in the product development life cycle, and each one is organized around a question that relates to an outcome. Right? So the first stage is, can you identify a core user problem? Or what outcomes are users trying to achieve that they can't achieve today? Right? The second stage, are there real customers who will get value from our solution? Or Will our customers deliver those out? Will, will our concept deliver those outcomes? Right? The third stage, validate. Is there a business model here? Will it generate the business results that we're trying to achieve? So this can be done, but it requires a massive change effort to reorient our process from outputs to outcomes. So how do we know if we're right? right? How do we know if we're achieving the outcomes? Um, when, when, um, uh, when Jeff and I were researching our second book, um, a lot of the ideas in this talk are, are from that second book, um, we, spoke to, we spoke to a lot of people working uh, in, um, in, in this way. One of the teams we talked to was the Obama for America campaign. And the Obama for America campaign is really, really interesting. Sort of the first, I think, really digitally native uh, presidential campaign. And one of the things they said was they used this phrase with us. They said, everything we're doing, all of our outreach is designed to create a two-way conversation with voters. And they're very aware that the sort of traditional advertising 
conversation and the traditional advertising dynamic of campaigns was a lot of one-way communication, right? We shout, we shout, we shout, we try to shout louder or more effectively, right? But what they were trying to do is create a two-way conversation. So everything that they were doing was inviting an explicit response from, uh, from their audience. This is a, a campaign page inviting people to post to Tumblr, this is 2012, um, to post to Tumblr with uh, specific hashtags, right? And to get their phone numbers so that we could send text message updates, right? And once we'd identified people who were actively responding to us, could we use them to activate our friends? So everything they were doing was about uh, an outreach that was designed to generate a conversation back, right? This two-way conversation with the market. Um, in, the, in the Tesla story, it was, there was both a literal conversation, right? The guy who tweeted at Elon Musk over Twitter and Twitter and, and, and Musk's response back. There's also this sort of metaphorical conversation, right? Musk didn't respond with a new feature because he thought it was cool or because, you know, he got one tweet. He responded because he knew it was becoming a problem, right? They had data through the car's telematics and through the chargers, uh, you know, the data that the charger was returning. They knew what was going on in the business, and that tweet just kind of crystallized it, right? So there's that two-way conversation. Now, the two-way conversation can go badly. Um, I had this experience recently. Um, I, uh, I installed, uh, does anybody know what this is? This is, this, uh, so I'm gonna beat these guys up, so I'm gonna tell you it's an awesome product. <laughs> um, this is a plume Wi-Fi mesh, and so it's a home mesh Wi-Fi. You install it in your house, you get all these pods, and you put them all over your house, and it gives you great Wi-Fi. And I love this product, and I, I, I bought it from my house, I bought it from my parents' house. Um, and then I was uh, planning to go away on a trip, I went away on a trip, and so I shut down the internet in my house, and I pulled the plume, uh, the power to the plumes. And a couple days later, I got this email. Hi, my name is Chad. We've received an alert that your pods have gone offline and I wanted to reach out to make sure that everything is okay. Have you disconnected your pods or are you expecting to be offline? Now, I don't know about you, but I thought that was creepy as hell. Um, like, it's really none of your business. Like, is my, is my toilet seat up? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so I, I wrote him back a nasty gram, and I said, you know, it's none of your goddamn business, and uh, you should tell your product manager that I resent the intrusion into my privacy. And Chad, a oh, poor Chad, Chad was really just doing his job, and you can see Chad is, is at Zendesk somewhere. I'm picking on Zendesk, too. Um, but Chad was just doing his job, and so Chad sent me back a link to the privacy policy. I was like, yeah, yeah. So, um, Chad, if you're here. Um, <laughs> so so how, do you, how, do you avoid, uh, how do you avoid being Chad? Um, <laughs> I'm gonna, that's my next talk, Mark, next year. Avoid, avoid being Chad. Um, so I, I, I think that what, what Chad was not able to do was to turn my response, they were not prepared for me to write back in the way I wrote back, 
They, the only thing they were prepared for was me to go, oh my God, my, my, my Wi-Fi's offline, let me plug it back in. Um, and, and I think what, uh, what that points out is you need to be prepared for collaborations. And so when we talk about collaboration, you can tell there's collaboration going on because there were all those post-it notes. Um, we, we, you can think about collaboration at three levels, right? There's the collaboration level that we usually talk about, which is about the team level of collaboration. And this is hard enough, this base level of collaboration. These are the PayPal offices shortly after they reorganized uh, in 2012 to move from sort of a building with engineering and a building with product management and a building with designers. They reorganized to create these sort of um, ironically enough, pod-like spaces um, where uh, product teams, small cross-functional product, product teams could sit together. Um, and so that's the first level, right, is creating uh, interdisciplinary collaboration on your product team, small, cross-functional, co-located, and self-sufficient. Self-sufficient meaning they have all the skills on the team they need to push software live. But there's another level um, of collaboration, which has to do with how you coordinate the activity of multiple teams. Um, this is a project room at Westpac in uh, Sydney, Australia. Westpac is the, um, not just the oldest bank in Australia, it's actually the first corporation uh, in Australia. And they're a massive bank. This project room uh, is a room in which they're planning a, a, a big program uh, in which their, their goal was to change the way they issue credit cards, right? Currently from sort of first interest to issuing of the card, it takes, let's say, about an average of seven days. And what they realized was during that time, there was an interested customer out there waiting to use their product, Right? Who was not using their product? So there's all this opportunity cost in that time, and they asked the question, could we bring that time down? And so sort of classic customer experience planning, they, they, on the top, there's a sort of a, here's today's universe, the next stripe down is tomorrow's universe, this is what we're trying to do. And then what they did, they, they just kind of bring teams to this project room, and they march them through the wall, because this is a, a cross-channel problem here, right? It, it, they have to coordinate the efforts of retail and online, and, and um, they have to coordinate the efforts of legal and risk and technology. There's, there's a huge number of, of groups that need to be coordinated around this. And so they march them through this wall, and they say, OK, risk team, here's where we are today. Here's where we want to be tomorrow. What can you do to help? Okay, retail team, here's where we are today, here's where we wanna to go tomorrow, what can you do to help, right? So aligning around the customer journey helps them create these collaborations uh, that coordinate the activity of multiple teams, multiple teams in a program. But then there's this third level, um, and I wanna share with you uh, a, uh, a video that I think kind of nicely illustrates this third level. Um, I'm going to set this video up. This is uh, a Weight Watchers ad from a couple of years ago uh, in which uh, Weight Watchers is introducing a new uh, product that, that runs on a smartphone. Okay? So we'll run this video. This is me. This is me 10 years ago, 50 pounds ago. I was overweight for a really long time, and now I'm not. 
I'm a Weight Watchers coach. All of us have lost weight with Weight Watchers and are now helping other people do the same. You can log into your computer or your phone anytime and you can chat with me. We understand. We've been there. We're still going through it. You're not alone. And you can do it. You can definitely do this. I know you can do it because I did it. Let's get you feeling awesome. Join for free and lose 10 pounds on us. I'm a coach. I'm real, right? What's this feature that's suddenly on your smartphone? It's like a phone where you can use to talk to other people. <laughs> Amazing, right? But, but, but like what actually happens on National Donut Day in that call center, right? Like is that just a, a line? Is that real? Like what, what, what happened on that first National Donut Day? Were they swamped with demand? Right? How do you know? And what are people really calling about? That's actually the more interesting question. What are people really calling about? Are they calling up Chad and saying, hey, Chad, it's really none of your business whether it's National Donut Day. I'm kind of mixing up the stories here. But the idea is that this is a business having conversations with its customers in real time. right? And a, a business that's organized around this doesn't outsource these conversations to a, uh, a third-party service provider, right? but actually has some way of creating that collaboration line from the customer to the coach to the product team. Right? All right, so the last thing I want to talk to you about is creating a learning culture, OK? Um, which in some ways is the hardest obstacle here. I want to show you this intersection. This is, it's a real treat for me to show this video in Massachusetts because this was actually filmed in Massachusetts. Anybody want to share with me since I don't, don't make me say the word of what we call Massachusetts drivers. Thank you very much. So now, let's say one day I went to my boss and I said, boss, this intersection is out of control. I'm going to get control of this intersection. I'm going to put up a stop sign and a no left turn sign. And my boss would probably say, great idea, Josh. That'll definitely solve the problem of that intersection. Because of course it will, right? But it doesn't. Because again, we're dealing with these complex systems that involve the behavior of all of these independent actors. Why is this happening? I mean, other than the fact that it's Massachusetts. Right? Why is this happening? We don't know. right? But the, the point is that our first guess at trying to get control of this, which seemed like a reasonable guess, is wrong. And that's the reality of dealing in the complex systems that we work in in the software world, right? is that we can have these ideas. They're rational. They're sensible. Nobody would disagree with them. And there's still a good chance that we're wrong. So how do we deal with that? How do we, how do we deal with that? We need to, and the answer is, you need to start from this place of humility, right? This place that says, you know, it's a good idea. I could be wrong. We, we worked with a client uh, in Germany that um, they're sort of a, a, a German Netflix. And one of the things that uh, the CEO there does is every holiday season, 
he sends his managers out to the Christmas markets to try to sell subscriptions to his service to people who are doing holiday shopping. Right? And the reason he does that is not because he thinks he's going to sell any subscriptions at the holiday markets, but because it forces the managers to go out and sell the service, to pitch the service, and to understand what people really think of the products that they're selling. It's an incredible way to generate humility, is to go stop a stranger in the street <laughs> and, and try and sell them on your product. Right? So, so this kind of culture, this kind of willingness to admit that uh, we are wrong, is, is, is fundamental to creating a culture of learning. Um, the, the Laszlo Bach, who ran people operations at Google, said, without humility, you're unable to learn. And so on that note, I want to leave you with just a quick sum of the principles for creating this kind of digital transformation. Right? Uh, embrace continuous change. Manage via outcomes. Create a two-way conversation with the market. Create collaborations. And create a learning culture. All right? Thanks very much. Joey and I take questions. Please, Joey, Joey. questions, because uh, I don't think enough people got. Joey, come here, buddy. Has anyone gone oh. back? Good boy. Yeah. All right. OK, All stick right. your hand up if you've got a question. Can I have your dog? Oh. <laughs> Hello. Two in the middle. Whichever okay. one gets first. Go. All right, so you led with uh, the interest in buying a Cadillac. Um, I, I know from a little bit of knowledge of the automotive industry, car development life cycles roughly seven years or something like that to get a new yep. car out, right? They put a new one out every year, but not much really changed, right? Um, I'm curious, you gave the bank an example, uh, Bank in Australia example. When you've got a company the size of Cadillac, there's a lot invested in just keeping the lights on doing my day-to-day -day stuff. There's a lot of people who don't build cars that have a job there that do a lot of things. If you're Cadillac, what are you doing right now? What are the things you're picking up? Um, how am I changing an interest of digital transformation? How do I make that carry throughout the organization? If I'm Cadillac, you, I, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm qualified to give strategic advice to Cadillac, but I, I do think that you know the reality I, I will tell you one, one thing, which is that this answering questions with Joey is a really bad idea. <laughs> Joey, you're no help. Um, you know, I, I, I think the thing that, that I'm seeing car manufacturers struggle with now is whether, is the question of if and how they can develop their own native software capability, right? And so, um, Earlier this year, you saw an announcement uh, between Waymo, which is the sort of Google spinoff, and um, I think it was Chrysler. You know, they announced um, they announced uh, at the Detroit Auto Show. They announced a self-driving van. Right? They each claimed it. Right? They're like Waymo announces the first self-driving van, and then the Chrysler's press release says Chrysler introduces the first self-driving van. And I think, like in that like conflict, you see the problem. Like who? Who is going to control the auto industry, right? Is it going to be the hardware manufacturers, or is Chrysler the sort of Android handset of the future? You know, 
I don't know the answer to that, but I think if you look at a company like Tesla that's building this capability into the DNA of the, of the company from the ground up, you have you know, one model that's really compelling and, and should be terrifying. Um, and then in the Cadillacs, I think you have you know, a sort of more traditional outsourcing strategy. I don't know what they're actually doing inside, but to me, that's, that's the question that you're wrestling with is, is the ability to which you can build that native capability. And I think in that question, you, you're seeing large organizations struggle with that across the board. Thank you for a great uh, talk. A lot of what we all do is we need to make decisions about resource allocation, the question of what our core competencies really are. And you make a great argument for customer service needs to be very centered. It should not be something that you are outsourcing out to some other player because it's how you get the feedback loop from the client. That was, made a lot of sense to me. But I was wondering if you could or if you had thoughts about what shouldn't be the core competency of the company that might previously we thought something we should be doing, say, five years ago, but then in this model is something that we should be putting to the side so that we can be focusing more on the sense and response um, competencies. Hmm. What should we stop doing? That's a great question. I don't know. I, 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 I know I'm supposed to have some clever answer to that, but, um, <laughs> but I don't. It's a great question. I mean, I think... Um, I think there is a, what I've seen my clients struggle with is what to pull into the core capability of the product team. Like to what extent customer service should be a shared resource, right? And if it's a shared resource, how do you stay in touch with customer service, right? Versus to what extent customer service should be on the core product team, right? We launched a, a startup um, service uh, a few years ago for a client in which um, the, in the early stages, customer service, uh, it was, a, it was a, a meal planning service. And so we had customer service, nutritionists, and food editors on the core product team, right? And in the long run, probably we thought, okay, we're probably going to spin some of that out into shared services. But initially, they needed to be part of the core team because we were talking to customers every day, and we needed to build that feedback into our product development process. Um, so I see teams struggling with that, like what to balance um, or how to balance core team versus shared resources. And, 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 and I have less exposure to, to your question about what we should be stopping. Yeah. Thank you, Rhiannon. Uh, I think somebody was there. So, hey, trust me, I'm a doctor. All right. <laughs> I've always got a question. So when we're talking about embracing constant change, um, how do you know that you're making changes in response to the things that you're aware of in the environment versus just getting caught up in the idea of we need to constantly change and almost like manufacturing change for the sake of it? Or is it okay to manufacture change for the sake of it? Yeah, I mean, God, I've never encountered a, a, a situation where people were changing too fast, right? Or changing for the sake of change. You know, it, in my experience, there's always more change than you can respond to and more to do than you can respond to. And so um, what I've seen is that uh, it's always a question. But one of the ways that, we, that, that I often manage projects is uh, through this structure 
um, I call a risks dashboard, right? Which is just like, what are the things that are coming to destroy us? I'm Mark Littlewood and I approve of that music. Whatever is coming to destroy us has a great theme song. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so this risks dashboard, you sort of, you're looking at it every week and you're saying what's coming down the pipe that we really need to worry about and what's not on this dashboard that we really need to worry about. And now, given our capacity to make a change, what changes are we going to make you know, in response to the risks? And, and my experience is there's, like, there's, there's, there's always you know, two or three that you can worry about and you know, 50 that fall below the line. And so, um, but I think, I think to me, that's, that's also the, if you had the great luxury of having all this capacity, the, um, the question would be in what's, what's really the highest risk here, right? And what's the signal that I'm getting from the market that says something has changed or something is risky or there's something out there that I don't understand that I need to go get understanding about? Thank you. Hi, Josh. So at the end of your talk, you, you talked a little bit about humility, right? Yeah. And this idea that your idea is sound and it's great, but it may not necessarily work. I think that's one of the things our company struggles with. Yeah. We spend a whole lot of time in the, let's put together another focus group and really make sure this is what our customers really need and want. So the question is, how do you, how do you balance that? How do you finally just tell your team we need to make a decision on something and try it in the market um, so that you don't continue to have this analysis paralysis problem? Yeah. So I think one of the ways you do that is by making the cost of being wrong really low, right? And the cost of being wrong, both like the actual cost, um, like it, you make it easy to roll back bad changes, right? And so you have that infrastructure, either you know, full production infrastructure that has the kind of mature DevOps capability that lets you, you know, pr push new code and then revert right, or feature flags that lets you turn off stuff that's crappy, right? Um, or uh, I was at a, a, a company yesterday that does a lot of A-B testing, right, in a, in a sort of isolated A-B testing environment, and they just turn off the stuff that doesn't work. So, so you make the cost of being wrong really low. Um, you make the cost of being wrong low culturally as well, right? by making it, uh, framing, the, framing what you're doing as a learning opportunity, right? And I always tell teams that are sort of stuck in that analysis paralysis, it's like when we're sitting in this room having compelling debates about whether you're right or you're right, that means neither of us has enough information to convince the other, right? And the way we get out of this, instead of wasting more time here, is we go get the information. And the way we get that information is by shipping. Right? or taking some learning action. Right? And so if you can kind of make the, if you can frame it around learning and, and make the cost really low, right? and also don't let yourself get into that learning, what, learning debt right? where you've been working on something for six months and then when you finally do ship it and it's wrong, it's brutal because you've just wasted six months. Right? So I think that's the key, is, is making, it, making, it, uh, making it possible to learn quickly and at, at low cost, both emotionally and, and you know, in terms of the green. John. Um, a couple times in my career, I've encountered businesses where uh, they, for whatever reason, good reasons, they are resistant to change. Um, 
your your clients can't absorb the change. For example, I built ICU software, um, and when you get it wrong, people die. Right. Right. Um, but there's still that need to move your business forward and to incorporate that change. Is there are there techniques you can use to reconcile those two things where you have a clientele that can't take the change or is resistant to change for some reason? Either maybe the training, you know, they rolled it out globally to, to you know, 10,000 people and it costs them a fortune to go retrain or something. Whatever it is, can, are there techniques you can use to, to make sure that your, your, uh, your business continues to march forward, but you're managing that, that need to temper the delivery? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there's sort of two things in, in that question that, that come to mind. The first is like connecting the need to change. Like uh, for me, and this is my presentation, this is a compelling argument, right? And I'm like, okay, yeah, change is like the environment we live in, we have the second half of the chessboard, whatever, right? Like, so thus we change, right? But I think for, for business people who are, really they're not about abstract ideas, it's about, okay, well look, what's gonna happen to my business if I just stand pat, right? And so to understand like, all right, we could make a strategic choice to stand pat and maybe that's the right decision for us. So let's look at that strategic choice. And maybe it is and maybe it isn't. And if it isn't, let's talk about now, we can start talking about change programs, right? But to first kind of go back and, and connect it to the strategic imperative to change, if, if there is one. And then I think the second thing is this idea that we, we used with clients, um, this idea of a sandbox. The sandbox is conceptually a safe place to play where if you, know, you make a change, to the respirator software and that change doesn't work, like no one dies, right? Because you, you've got a testing environment that gives you meaningful learning but also makes it safe to fail. And it is challenging sometimes, but I've seen it done. You know, I've, 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 I've done some consulting at, um, at uh, GE Software. Um, I, I presented a version of this talk to a group of engineers who write control systems for nuclear power plants. And they were like, ha, 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 safe to fail. <laughs> right? But, but in that case, you've also got money to, to create simulated environments. And so I think you know, there's ways to test everything. It, but again, it has to be tied back to that, will, that strategic need to change. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Hi, Josh, over here. Hi. Um, so I actually was here last year and I went to your workshop oh, great. after with you and Jeff and it was really fantastic and so actually I brought it back to my company um, and, and it was embraced, right, seemingly. Um, and Great. everyone was everyone right, was excited. Go, okay? <laughs> everyone was excited about it, and we were like, okay, we sense and respond. You know, we had been putting out product roadmaps that looked out, you know, a year, um, and so I was like, no more. No more of that, and my boss was like, oh, "Okay, yeah, no, that's fine." Um, and so, on the on the base level, on the team level, we started implementing it, and uh, everyone was excited about it. You know, respond to the customer, um, you know, sense sense what they need, do it, build it, get feedback, do more, you know, listen more, and and do it. Um, and essentially, what I'm getting at is is there's there we hit a wall um, somewhere because there's this sense of, okay, sure, we want you to respond to the customer and build what they want, um, you know, sense and respond, but uh, when is it going to be done? And when is, 
can I can I just get like a, a, a roadmap of when, you know, in six months when it's going to be built and what's going to be built and um, actually using the backlog of what we want to build based on what we listen to for customers and like sizing that and actually having it be our product roadmap. And like there's this like there's these like two competing ideas. And so I guess what I'm asking is, is you know, what's your advice on it? Again, it was embraced seemingly, but then there were things that were just so contradictory. It was like, okay, but we need to know when this is going to be built and when we're going to be able to do that and how long it's going to take. And uh, you need to. We had our product department like doing all of that overhead of like estimating times and breaking down stories and and making it, you know, real to them on a high level. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I was just at a, um, I was just talking to a company yesterday that had taken some of the ideas in the book and they had restructured their product group around uh, what they call outcome teams, which is a phrase they made up, but it was their way of expressing working in this way. And they said that, um, They've, they've made a couple of cuts at this as they've, the first time they implemented it, they got some positive, some positives from it, but um, uh, they also had some trouble. And so they, they, they've made a couple of passes through trying to do this. In other words, they've iterated on their process. Um, one of the things that they learned was that they had to train stakeholders. That was their phrase, right? So a lot, and, and they feel like that's an ongoing effort that one of the things that the product managers do is they're constantly training stakeholders to kind of think in a new way. And that new way is sort of, it's about trust building and it's about saying, you have a business problem, we're the experts, we're gonna solve it, right? So there's the training stakeholders. But then the other piece of it was they said um, that there was a huge backlog of work that they tried to maintain as they transitioned from the old world to the new. And that they said that what they needed to do, they realized they had to declare backlog bankruptcy. And they just zeroed out all of their backlogs. Can, can all of you just imagine that for a minute? It's just like take a moment, it's like ah, right? Um, so they zeroed out their backlogs and just started from scratch. and like. Nobody forgot any of the important work, right? Um, but then the third thing they, they mentioned, and this isn't really comprehensive, I'm just kind of reporting on what they told me. The third thing they said was, there was a, there was a, sli a slice of sort of routine work that didn't fit into this model. It was just like features that had to get built or work that needed to get done as part of routine operations. And they kind of sliced that off into a separate queue and kind of that was handled by a separate team. So all of this, uh, I'm not sure if this exactly answers your questions, except to say that like, doing this is kind of a discovery process with, um, with uh, sort of figuring out how this fits into your organization and, and who needs those roadmaps for what reason. The other case, maybe I'll point you uh, just to kind of wrap this question, uh, there's a terrific a uh, piece on road mapping that the U uh, UK uh, GDS, Government Digital Service, uh, wrote. Um, 
and if you, if you hit me on Twitter afterwards, I'll share the link. But it, it, it was a piece about how they did road mapping because they found themselves in a similar situation where they had to commit to some things, right? It was just, it was a big enough organization that they had to make some concrete commitments. And so how did they balance that and still give themselves the room to operate? If you'd like to leave us a review, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Your glowing reviews help us reach more people and more businesses, which in turn gives us more insights, more inspiration and more great talks. If you're sitting there and thinking, I want to improve my company and these podcasts are amazing, why not check out businessofsoftware.org where you can find out about upcoming masterclasses, watch videos of talks from previous conferences and see our new trailer for the Boss USA Online 2020 conference coming this September. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.